You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa, nature's catalyst for optimizing fat metabolism. Hi, welcome to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast. I'm your host, Peter Defty, with my co-host, the lovely Naomi Land down from Australia. Hey, Naomi. Good morning. And today we have uh, Peter Ballerstadt, PhD. I like, I love that, you know, piled higher and deeper, right? Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> and, and Peter, by, by profession, is a forage agronomist. Is that correct? That's correct, with a ruminant nutrition minor. Okay. I did, you never told me this. Wow. Uh, well, wow. We're um, just discovering each other all, all over again here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a little... Little strange there, Peter. Now, come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, wow, that's great because uh, ruminant nutrition is one of my uh, one of the things I I actually look into quite a bit because uh, I look at the modern dairy cow the same way I look at a a, a high end elite athlete. Except the metric is milk production, and, you, and and they're really pushing these cows hard. So it's 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 a fascinating thing. So. Uh, Peter is a forage agronomist, but um, he's got a wonderful story that where he's combined his own personal journey um, in fat adaptation and low carb with his profession. So, um, Peter, I guess you ought to get, talk. Let's get you going. Talk about yourself. Talk about your own personal story, and then how this whole idea of uh, of yours of the ruminant revolution fits in, and then we'll dive into some of the details. Wonderful. Um, it's great to be part of your podcast. Um, my story starts uh, back in 2007 from my own personal experience. At that point, I was, um, to sum it up, a, a, an obese pre-diabetic, and now I'm not. And that's mostly due to me running across, uh, thanks to my wife's research ahead of that time, people like Michael and Mary Dan Eads, and then reading Gary Taubes and Jimmy Moore and many of the other people who were active at that point. There's obviously been many more since. Um, But along the way, Um, I was able to start putting together my training in animal nutrition, specifically ruminant animal nutrition, along with forage systems and human nutrition. Um, We've basically been told for decades that the products of ruminant agriculture are harmful to human health. (laughs) I don't like that. because I know a lot of people who are busy, uh, they work in the hard work of ruminant agriculture. And so over the years, I found myself coming back into, now I work for a seed company. And uh, the company that I work for develops improved varieties of pasture grasses and clovers, etc., And so I've been given the opportunity to talk to forage agriculture about the low-carb, high-fat dietary message, which if you look at agricultural audiences, you realize there's every bit the need for them to hear that message as the general population. 
uh, perhaps even more because in general the agricultural audience tends to be a little older. The farming population is aging and so that's an issue. Um, and so I get to be an advocate today for the low carbohydrate, high fat dietary message and at the same time an advocate for ruminant agriculture. Well, yeah, and, and, the, and the agriculturalists, you know, it's a dwindling amount. You know, it gets to be less and less as a percentage of the population. They're actually the stewards of the land. Absolutely. Um, and, and they're so effective and efficient that fewer and fewer of, of the population need to be on the land to feed the rest of the population. And uh, I think one of the slides that I showed in San Diego was that uh, today in the United States, there's actually fewer people, there are more people incarcerated in the United States than there are listed as primary operators of farms. Wow. <laughs> so are you saying that in America that farming is becoming quite low agriculturally? In, in terms of the number of people who are, that's where they make their living, absolutely. Right. So are you finding that the bigger companies are becoming bigger and the little people that were had small farming are becoming smaller? No. Um, in fact, the opposite um, would be true in this. It, certainly, everything I'm going to be saying is from a ruminant livestock uh, perspective. And so if you look at the numbers for the average beef cow herd size in the United States, it's somewhere below 25 head. That's the wow. average. Wow. And, and most of wow. the, 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 the vast majority of these operations are family enterprises. Now in the United States, there's a large legal financial in, um, impetus for those family businesses to become incorporated, right? Mm. But so then you have people talking about corporate farming. Well, <laughs> yes and no. It's, it's true they're incorporated, but they're still a family operation. And the reason they do that is to protect their wealth, you know, to protect yes. their fiscal yes. interest and yep. to enable yep. transition from one generation to another. It's not the picture that many people will assume it to be. I mean, frankly, it's a really poor investment to go into agriculture for a big business. Yeah, no, it, and, and that's what a lot of people don't understand when they look at, quote, quote unquote, corporate agriculture. They, you know, when I look at it, these people have a lot invested and a lot at risk and a lot at stake in their business. And yes, they're making money as they should, but... When you look at the amount of, of fixed capital uh, they have invested, it's not fluid capital. It's it's pretty. It, it doesn't make for a yeah the the way capital works today and the, the speed of capital today. Most of your quote unquote investors aren't attracted to it. it, it exactly right. So um, um, I, I guess that this uh, you know we. Agriculture in the United States has become increasingly efficient, and I don't enter into this space just blindly and wholly, you know, backing one side or the other, but I am trying to stand between audiences 
and, and get them introduced to each other and talk with each other because I think that there's a great deal we need to learn from each other. And the two audiences I have in, in mind uh, primarily are the ruminant agriculture audience and then the, and I still struggle with the right word, but the, the maybe the more informed nutrition audience. Um, the, the low carb, high fat would be one uh, description because they tend to be audiences that don't have a lot of contact with each other, although they, I think, should. And I think that they're natural allies to each other. But unfortunately, I've heard some really amazing things said by people who operate in the low carb space. Um, about so what does what that language? Um, what does that language sound like? What are they saying? Oh, oh. Um, how, for example, meat in the United States is filled with antibiotics. Yeah. Or, yeah. or you know, that they get involved in what I call label claims. Mm-hmm. So organic, natural, whatever. Um, or that they describe um, uh, basically abusive conditions that the animals are, you know, housed in or, or in the production system. You know, at the end of the day, anim, you know, meat is going to come from animals that we had to slaughter as humanely as possible. And, but there's no getting around that. Um, but one of the comments that I try to make to people is, look, we, we understand how harmful stress is to human beings, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So let's think about someone who's operating on a very small margin in the livestock industry and ask ourselves, would it not also be likely that they're going to do everything they can to reduce the stress in those animals because it impacts their profitability every bit as much as it impacts human health. And, and the, the people involved in animal agriculture, again, you can always find bad examples in whatever population you're surveying. Yeah, that's but right. But people yeah, who, right. you know, for the most part, you're dealing with people who are working with these animals throughout their lifetimes. In some cases, you have people who have spent generations on the genetics that are now represented in this cow herd that they're managing. Um, it, it, it is every, you know, they put everything they have into this. And so I just like people to kind of get that experience of what, what that's like. And, and also, um, in my talk in San Diego, I tried to lay out the case that our dietary guidelines, the low fat is heart healthy kind of story, um, came to us from a worldview and a mindset that also that includes the vegetarian worldview and mindset. And it included the developing environmental worldview and mindset of the 60s and the 70s. And, and many of these personalities and belief systems are still in play today. 
and I try to make the case that they were wrong in the 60s and the 70s, and they're still wrong today, but they're very popular. And so they color a lot of the conversation, they color a lot of the, of the um, perceptions. And yeah. I just like us to, ex to be aware of that so that we can at least examine them rather than just carry them along unexamined. Yeah, and at the same time, examine some of the hard facts of of the environment and environmental biology, and 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 uh, the hard facts of human the human physiology, the human digestive system, and human nutrition, which seem to have been glossed over. And I think I think one of the things we should have you speak about is let's talk about how ruminants. Um, fit into the biological system of the earth and, and how they're not the whole idea of them being these environmental disasters spewing methane or methane or however the English say it into the air and causing global warming is is not quite as um, accurate. I mean, people look at, wh at what's in front of them and not look at the whole system. And so you know, when you're measuring methane emissions from cows and 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 then cattle and the silage and all that, and then you're not looking at the whole system. And and I think that the, that you know Alan Savory's work and certainly your work is showing a very different picture that animal. You know, the ruminants are just absolutely necessary for the environment, especially the grasslands. Ruminant animals are fundamental to the ecology of the entire earth. Um, grasslands as an ecosystem or as a biome are one of the largest uh, of the dry land uh, on earth. Um, as a source of food for humans, they're absolutely critical, but we can take a look at you know, the energy flow in the earth is, is, is you know, sunlight, Radiant energy is fixed via photosynthesis using carbon dioxide as a substrate. And so that process produces carbohydrate. Now, it can be sugar or, or starch, but primarily fixed carbohydrate or fixed CO2 is cellulose. That, that's the most abundant carbohydrate in the biosphere. Um, no mammal produces the enzyme necessary to break that long chain carbohydrate down into its constituent glucose units. It's interesting, if you hook glucose units together one way, you have cellulose. If you hook them together a different way, you have starch. And that difference in the bond makes all the difference. Uh, only microorganisms make cellulase. And so ruminants form this vital link in the energy flow in the biosphere. They ingest this high fiber, low fat, and poor protein feedstuff through the microorganisms that they house in their rumen or reticulorumen, which is the first two compartments of their four-compartment stomach, they then ferment this ingest, ingested material and they form as primary byproducts, the, or primary products, volatile fatty acids and microbial protein. 
the host organism, the, the cow or the sheep or the goat or the deer or moose or whatever the the um, rumen the will, is. The wildebeest, the eland, the gazelle, uh, yeah. A absolutely. A vast, you know, there's a large number of these animals. Yeah, they um, occupy every niche in, in, in nature, correct? Well, the grasslands are dependent on grazing animals and fire. Right. That's what grasses evolved under, um, those pressures. Um, so, so we have, for example, in a beef cow grazing grass, she's going to ingest a diet that's less than 5% fat. But by the time she's done with uh, absorbing the volatile fatty acids that are produced, um, her diet her 60 some percent of her energy is going to come from the fat that's produced via that anaerobic fermentation process and then the 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 microbial protein that's formed uh, is going to take the non-protein nitrogen and form it into um, protein sources that are of great use to the animal so that now we have um, this rich source of fat and animal protein for us to then consume. So that can be via dairy or it can be via meat products. And it's such a natural process, isn't it? Like humanly natural. A absolutely. I think uh, the, the, the quote is that we didn't evolve to eat meat, we evolved because we ate meat. And, yeah. and then one could even go a little further and say it's, it's not just that, but we evolved because we learned to cook meat. Yeah, it's, it's like I say, we, we traded a big gut for a big brain, and then when we got the big rain, brain, we learned how to cook and make tools. Further, further lessening the dependency on having that big gut. Exactly right. And, and every organism seemingly alters its environment. You know, this, we, we do it perhaps to a greater degree than others, but maybe that's our natural niche as well, is, is that's what we are as a species. And so then there's a whole nother conversation where there are people who believe that natural is good and man is not part of nature. And therefore anything that man does is not good because it's unnatural. So we're all unnatural. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, yeah. I think that we need to kind of have a conversation about that as well as a mindset. But I, I think that this pastoral farming, the, um, the, the use of grazing animals to uh, maintain and in fact improve grassland is undisputed. Um, it's possible to do damage, absolutely, but I'd put that up against plowing and those forms of cultivation and then we can have a conversation. Um, and, and in addition, it's, it's an it, it's an important source of wealth generation for agriculturalists worldwide. You know, if I start with 100 cows and all goes well, in two years' time, I should have something approaching 
130 to 150 cows. And then I can have a couple of wives, right, if I was Maasai? Well, yeah, that's <laughs> oh, a whole other conversation. We won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're the host. You can go wherever you'd like. I'll just <laughs> Good answer. Thank you. <laughs> so tell us what methane, tell us about methane. Ah, yes, thank you for bringing me back on track. Um, the, the one thing, and as I mentioned, this is a process that depends on fixing carbohydrate. Right? So any emissions that come from a grazing animal are, if you will, a return of, of CO2 to the atmosphere from whence it came to be fixed in photosynthesis to begin with. It's a cycling of, of CO2. It's not an enrichment. And what frequently happens is the people involved in the, I'll call them anti-ruminant debate, um, neglect where the carbon dioxide came from in the first place or where the carbon that ends up in methane came from in the first place. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, what Alan Savory is starting to show with his work is that properly managed uh, forage crops and, and grazing, there's actually a net carbon sequestration in ways that um, these uh, people had not recognized. Um, you know, when they took... You know, they, they thought that grazing animals were the problem, took them off, and these, these areas got more desertified uh, by taking them off. But when they, when they actually started putting animals on there and bunching them the way that um, to mimic predators, um, because, you know, herbivores tend to bunch because you can, you know, maybe a few people get, a few of the animals get killed, but the, the species survives and, and the predators move them around, they, they actually have seen, shown, you know, in a real world sense that um, they brought back these grasslands to lush, you know, uh, grasslands the way they should be. And, and in, the, in the process, actually net, net sequestered a lot of methane. Well, so there's, it's, it's, it's obviously a very complicated story. Yep. And so there are many factors that we could and people are looking at. But from the perspective of CO2 cycling, and, and I, it, it, it's interesting to note that we've called it carbon, right? Because carbon is sooty, carbon is dirty, carbon, you know, is smelly. We're talking about CO2. CO2 is a completely natural trace gas that is absolutely essential for life on Earth. We, we've had some people so manage the conversation that it's become this pollutant, according to EPA, which itself would be worth looking at. Number two is the conversation about methane is entirely dependent on many assumptions which themselves can be debated in terms of its amplifying power as a, or warming potential, its residency time in the atmosphere, etc., etc. But what is clear is the contribution of livestock to greenhouse gas emissions has been vastly overstated. And as you're saying, um, when we just look at how that carbon dioxide 
cycles through and is then emitted by livestock, we need to also look at how much carbon dioxide gets fixed into things like root mass, leaf litter, or the animals themselves. And, and so if you just think logically about it, it's clear that it's, it's not an enrichment process. And in fact, some research has been done now in the southeastern U.S. that shows the degree of organic carbon increase in soils. And, and what we're seeing is tremendous increase over a relatively short period of time in those humid environments under managed grazing conditions. And, and when we look at that, it's, it's a huge amount in, in terms of equivalents of cars or, or uh, you know, barrels of oil equivalent or any of those sorts of things. And so at the end of the day, you get to the point where it's, it's just not the issue. And, and yet it becomes the issue for ideological reasons. Um, but I understand that it's a space that we have to spend some time talking about. Well, and that's why we want to get the, these kind of uh, conversations going. Yeah, and educating people as well. Right, Peter? Yes, yes. Uh, sorry, you have two people you could be addressing. Ah, uh, yes, I was you. No, she, she, doesn't call, she doesn't call me that. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Just hey, you. Yeah, pretty much. But, but I guess I would push back because in the sustainability space, I would say that what is unsustainable is the current epidemic of chronic illness. And, and all of the evidence that we have, right, in the United States is that we're looking at something like half to three quarters of the adult population, depending on the numbers you want to look at, it, are hyperinsulinemic to some degree or other. Well, that's what's breaking our healthcare system. That's what's diminishing human life and, and human potential. And that's been, ironically, perhaps, driven by the very same people who are now saying, oh, sustainability is why we should be eating plant-based diets, and they want to incorporate sustainability factors, their definition, into the dietary guideline recommendations. Well, I'd say not so fast. Mm, not yeah, sustainable yeah, no, for human beings. Yeah. And it's kind exactly. Of it's kind of interesting because Nicolette Neiman or Han Neiman, uh, she's a vegetarian actually, but she's she's a pro uh, beef uh, person. Uh, she said, you know, she's done some interesting data gathering, and, and most of the, the you know these policymakers who who are let's let's just say they're they're well intentioned, but they're misinformed, uh, and and they're not willing to step away from what they think is right for themselves and the rest of the world and, and look at the realities. And, and Nicholas done, done some amazing data gathering that, that most of the world's poor absolutely depend on their ruminant animals for their health, wealth, and livelihood. It, they're absolutely essential. And unfortunately, our policies tend to impact more severely on the poor. And you can look at the data of the impact of diabetes or any of the, the um, uh, metabolic disease cl you know, clusters, the, 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 the various symptoms, and, and they all impact hardest 
on the lower socioeconomic groups of, of our society. So, in a sense, this is a real justice issue. Um, and yeah, and these people are the ones that these policymakers always, they also rail against social injustice, but yet their policies are the ones that are impacting these, the very people they, they claim to be championing. championing. Absolutely. So, so we, you know, uh, yes, I absolutely believe that it's possible for people to be sincerely wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, they absolutely believe what they're saying. Um, but I also know that there's a certain portion of people involved in the debate that really do know, but they maintain their position despite knowing. And yeah. that, that becomes a very different conversation because now we're dealing with people that are more concerned with maintaining power and privilege and, and financial interest. And we're beginning to see some of those things work out in terms of dietary you know, guideline issues, the current, you know, trial, quote unquote, of Professor Noakes and, and the, the squelching of people in New Zealand uh, and, and in Australia and who knows in this country as well. So uh, all these things are going to work themselves out in the fullness of time. And thanks to things like the Internet, we now have access to more information than we ever did before. So so. Part of this is, a, is a, a need for us to start the conversations between, you know, as I say, the agricultural group and maybe a more informed dietary group. Um, I think that, frankly, high-performance athletes, as, as you're involved with, are going to be huge in this because, unfortunately, we're pretty sick in this culture about what, you know, um, what's the, 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 the idol status or, you know, celebrity. Um, and so the more that we can see people performing at a high level, the greater that will help to break down some of the messages that everybody's been told about how, you know, you have to have carbohydrates to perform. You, have to have carbohydrates for your brain to function. You have to have all the, wait, wait a minute. Here's all, here's people actually doing this. This isn't theoretical. This is real stuff. Well, so part of this, part of this then is if, if your diet arguably should be based more on animal products than plant products, where are they going to come from? How are they going to be produced? And oh, by the way, we've got 2 billion more people coming at us in the next 34 years. Yeah, and, and and the thing is, is is with the athletes, it, you you bring up a good point. You know, people watch, quote unquote, celebrities and athletes, and and yet, you know, a lot of these athletes, especially in the pro sports here in the United States, they're really not healthy. They're either overnourished and underfed. You know, like your pro sports uh, football people, or like some of these some of these athletes in running are just. Or, or cycling just they're not they're not healthy and and yet there's this myth pervasive myth that the healthiest people you know eat a lot of carbohydrates and um you know a lot of these people are having these short career spans and and all that and, and i think one of the things um i wanted to bring up as a side that you brought up about the socioeconomics is like in australia naomi the aborigines um who weren't you know you know up until they were settled and rounded up were on a on a very you know they kangaroos right 
Yeah, that's right. Kangaroos and, and um, worms and witchy grubs and whatever else was out there. So and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think even when Michael Eads uh, was once referenced to study and and you know a delicacy was kangaroo bone marrow, but there were some studies uh, about some of these primitive men and they were. That, you know, when they're hunting, when they were looking at their mud, you know, the tracks left in this mud that got frozen in time, these, you know, the, they surmise these people were just, you know, would make any of the, the today's athletes look like a bunch of wimps. And yet, you know, and today with the with the modern diet, these people who weren't who are totally carbohydrate intolerant have been just broken. And, and you, I think I've seen some things on, on some of the news where some of these Aborigines have, have gone back to their traditional diet and they get lean and fit and look great. And you see the pictures of before when they were on the Western diet. Yes. Yeah. And I think alcohol in, um, primarily in Australia really affects Aborigines. So once they get off that and the sugars, then, um, yeah, they go back to their natural state. Uh, what wouldn't uh, what uh, Dr. Uh, Wortman's um, effort in uh, British Columbia, Canada? Yeah, with the First Nations. Exactly, my big fat diet, which I guess now is available as uh, on YouTube. You can just find the documentary. I have been around long enough to have bought the DVD years ago. Um, so the 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 First Nation the. Native Americans, um, I think the last thing that I heard was something like their rate of diabetes is five times the, the, the average of all the rest of the populations of North America. So it's a huge issue, um, but, you know, it's, it's also, you know, a problem in various regions of the United States, you know, the southeastern U.S., is where we see the highest rates of obesity and diabetes. Some people are now calling it the diabetes belt. Um, it, 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 it's just a, it, so part of part of uh, Adele Height is a, is a colleague on uh, a group called the uh, Healthy Nation Coalition. She spent a lot of time looking at the origin and and process of the dietary guidelines. Um, just as a sort of comment that she made at one presentation that I listened to, she said, you know, the, the dietary guidelines have never been intended for sick people. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, you're right. So, so, I mean, their whole point was eat this way and you lower your risk of becoming sick. So one could have a whole argument and should about the basis of those guidelines and, you know, all of that. But there's a part of me that says, okay, let's take them at their word. They don't intend these for sick people. Great. Unfortunately, the reality now is that in the United States, if you turn up at your physicians and you are manifesting metabolic syndrome, you're going to be told nine times out of ten or some large percentage of the time that you need to go on this low-fat diet, right? Because they're going, to, they're going to revert to the official dietary guidelines, not knowing that they aren't intended for people who have diabetes or heart disease or dyslipidemia or any of those conditions. Okay, fine. So I am in the process as part of what I'm trying to do is, is get people who have been involved in 
extending information um, to understand that and then get involved with distributing the science-based dietary information about what someone who has those conditions ought to do as a first course of action. And so I think that we have a really solid science base that says that if you're manifesting metabolic syndrome, your first course of action ought to be to adopt a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. And then from, yeah. from there we can, you know, we can go along. But I think that's a real opportunity for us to perhaps do an end run around the, you know, orthodoxy that says that, you know, the healthy diet is this. Well, so, so part of this then becomes an effort to educate the producer and the consumer. Yeah, well, I was just on the phone here before this podcast with Steve Finney. We were just catching up and um, he, Jeff Bollock and Sarah Hallberg are running a big uh, trial on in Ohio. I, th I think it's Ohio, Indiana anyway, um, and with a bunch of diabetics and they're seeing phenomenal results. And it's, it's you know, prescribing a well-formulated uh, ketogenic diet. And so... Um, but this this does threaten a lot of people, and this is the conversation you know we 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 want to have is is it threatens certain entities because you solve the problem you you gut the economic engine. Well, yeah. So um, one one of my lines is you can tell when idols are being worshipped because human beings are being sacrificed. <laughs> right. And so yeah. okay, let's let's just know where we stand and go from there. Um, you know. For decades, we've been throwing the ruminant animal agriculture into the gutter, saying, you're the reason that we're seeing all these problems. I want to help us stand up on our hind legs and say, not so fast, my friends. You know, we, are, we have a good environmental message of stewardship, of, you know, economic impact, all of those are good messages. And oh, by the way, now we can have the conversation about how we are producing products that can be fundamental to correcting this huge and hideous epidemic of chronic illness in the United States. I think that's a great story. How do we do that effectively? And, and, and as we do that, how do we prepare more people than just Peter Defty or Peter Ballerstead or any of the others? Because this has to be now a more dispersed message because it's easy to pick off Peter Ballerstead. It's no, 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 Peter Defty's a lot easier target, uh, trust me. Yeah, you don't have the PhD, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm, so, I'm just... Yeah. But, but the point is to, to get the information into the lives of more people because this is life-changing information. And once the lives are changed, then just step back. At, at some point, you're going to reach the right person. And, and this is maybe a little cold, but at some point, you're going to reach the right person who's just, who's just experienced the loss of a spouse due to what we could now arguably call type 3 diabetes. Alzheimer's disease. 
you know, or, or being put on a statin drug because their cholesterol was a little out of whack. I, I lost a very close friend here this year, and it all started with him being perfectly healthy and his cholesterol was a little out, and he went on a statin. Yeah. So, so the right person, by my definition, is someone who's equipped with that information and that experience who understands politics to a far better degree than I do. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, they're tied into all the politics, right, because of you know, the, what they've been doing as a life experience that, okay, they'll know what to do at that point. We just have to keep giving them the right information. And, and then the challenge for us is to make sure that we're not putting the dietary and health information at risk by tying it to some of these unexamined other belief systems that have come along, and I would suggest contaminated our, our, our dietary message. Um, and, and I need to be as well on guard that I don't just blindly kind of disregard that information as it comes to me. But repeatedly I've seen people say things or write things in this space that are, it's just not hard to disprove it. And, and that's what makes me nervous is that we're going to have enough enemies as we go down this track. Let's not give them easy targets. <laughs> well, let's go in the next way. Naomi, you had a question? Uh, yes, I did, Peter. Um, let's talk about the ruminant animal foods, the facts on the ruminant animal foods. Yeah, you know, like red meat's bad, right? Ruminant red meat from a cow is bad. You know, you've, you've heard, we've all heard this. Right. And, and this is where I, this is one of the big reasons I, I brought you on is, is you, you so eloquently put out what I've always seen, known and said, but you've got the facts, the hard data. Yeah. Like, like the, um, the bad fats, you know, like they're saying that, um, ruminant animal fats are bad for your cholesterol and your health and that sort of thing. So, so male bovine fecal matter, right? Okay. <laughs> Bullshit. I'll say it. Bullshit. Okay, there you go. You're the host. You can do that. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so we'll, uh, MBFM, let's just remember that acronym. Um, so take the red meat issue. The only reason that that comes up is because it's the result of the same sort of nutritional epidemiology, not MBFM, that, that you look for, you know, we're, we're trying to ask people what they eat, and there's all kinds of issues with that kind of data, right, food frequency questions, and then we look at what diseases they get, and then we torture the data until we find the right associations, right being what we're looking for. And that then means, we, that meets, meets the confirmational bias. Exactly. And then, and, then, you know, and then we say, well, it was the red meat that did that. And, and another version of that is when you find people talking about processed meats. Well, the problem that I see with, with that is summed up with, you know, first of all, processed meats, processed animal products, and processed plant products are in no way comparable. And, and the problem is not what's in the processed meats or animal products. It's what we serve those on and with. So I will eat bologna by itself, <laughs> but most people are going to have it on a couple slices of bread 
with the potato chips fried in vegetable oil and the big thing of sugar water, right? But when the epidemiology survey comes along, they're going to look at the bologna, right? They're going to look at the meat patty and the hamburger. They're not going to look at the French fries and everything else that goes along with it. So, so there's now a growing awareness that IARC itself is a broken um, organization and and basically almost everything that they've ever looked at comes out labeled as a suspected carcinogen. So IARC unfortunately is becoming less and less creditable. Who's IARC? IARC is the International Agency on Cancer Research, which is where we got the news that, you know, red meat or processed meat is a carcinogen equal to cigarette smoking. Right? Nonsense. So, I, so let's let's continue this conversation. I think you have some really good salient data, and since you have that PhD, you can say this because I've been saying this for years. I think we should go through the laundry list of like grain finished beef versus grass fed. That you know the difference, and then then how does that compare? Which people don't realize is how does that compare to say chicken or pork or you know the omega three fatty acid profiles you know, blah, 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 blah. And you, you just have a, your presentation really sorted that out. Um, and so could you kind of run through that for, for us in the audience, please? Sure. And, and just before I get there, Naomi also asked about the good fats, bad fats. Yep. Issue. Go with that and, first. And so the, the reason that we think saturated fat is bad is because it raises LDL cholesterol. Uh, which is now understood to be a virtually meaningless indicator of heart disease risk. So, again, that's where we got it from. Um, the other thing to bear in mind about animal fats is that they're not a single fat. Um, fatty acid, Animal fats are, in fact, a mixture of fatty acids. And so if you do the the math on it, um, almost just a little under half of the fatty acids that would be in beef tallow, for example, which is the rendered fat you'd get from a, uh, a, a cow, um, uh, almost half of that is oleic fatty acid, which is the monounsaturated fatty acid from olive oil, from which we get the name. Um, everyone says olive oil is heart healthy. <laughs> so. You know, it's kind of interesting. And then you have stearic fatty acid, which the body metabolizes into oleic acid. And so it, it from what we understand today, if you ate beef tallow and didn't eat carbohydrate, you'd improve your blood lipid profile. So, again, the red meat is not a concern. The fats are not a concern. Uh, if we then look at this question of omega-6 and omega-3, what I, what I try to tell people is um, beef, regardless of how it's finished, is not a rich source of either omega-6 or omega-3. And, and then if you look at ratios, which people frequently do, that ignores the total amount that you're getting in whatever you're eating. And so the ratio for uh, pork or for poultry that you would buy in the supermarket is actually higher than grain-finished beef is. 
And then if you look at the amount of omega-6 that you're getting from those products, they're much greater than you're getting from beef or any other ruminant. And it makes sense because the, the anaerobic digestion process is going to uh, alter the incoming fat supply and therefore the fat in the fatty acid profile of the meat. Whereas the fatty acid profile in pork is much more malleable by the diet. Okay. Um, if you look at, for example, soybean oil, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of soybean oil is actually a better number than pork or poultry. Yeah, but, but when you look at the actual amount that's in it, it's this obscenely high level of omega-6. Yeah, and the other thing that people need to know uh, and is, is often not is kind of obfuscated in the marketing is plant-based omega-3s are not your essential omega-3s. And this is a real problem. Yes. And, and if, you know, so if you have someone who's still eating vegetable oils, like safflower oil, for example, there's no way that they can hope to realize the benefit that they think they're getting by spending more for grass-finished beef. I'm all for grass-finished beef, don't get me wrong. But I don't want, you know, I, I don't want people thinking that that's what they're getting when they're spending more for it. So yeah, can you exactly. explain the difference to um, our listeners today? So explain the difference between the meats and how they're finished off. Well, so if you have some, to my mind, a grass-finished, grass-fed animal is one that's going to be brought to slaughter weight entirely on pasture, haylage, or hay. Okay, then, and 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 what most people don't understand is even in the United States that's going to be the vast majority of animals for the vast majority of their life. It's only for about three or four months that animals go into, you know, kind of a feedlot finishing operation in the United yeah. States. Other yeah, countries, it's different. Yeah, it's not, it's not economically feasible to put them on grain all their lives, as, as a lot of people mistakenly sort of perceive. Sure. I mean, the cow-calf operation, you've got to produce this animal you're doing on, on relatively unproductive land. Um, that's their ecological niche. Um, so so you, you, you have basically two um, types. The, the majority of beef in the United States is going to come from animals that have spent three to four months, plus or minus, on a higher energy finishing ration that will still contain forage. And a great deal of that higher energy in the ration is going to come from products that are not necessarily human utilizable grain stuffs. So again, part of the argument is, oh, well, there's this competition between humans and ruminants and um, pushing back and saying, no, that's not true. Um, so, so you, you have that, and then you have a very small percentage in the U.S. market. It's a greater percentage in other markets 
where the animals are brought to that finish weight um, at, on pasture alone or forage. Yeah, and, and also the breed matters too because there's only a few breeds that really do well in terms of the finished the finish beef flavor. Like there's some Angus back east in North Carolina. And then the, is it the Wangu, the Japanese Kobe beef? Um, Wagyu, yeah, that they've been doing that's, – that's been a very big niche market of grass-finished Wagyu because the Wagyu is so well-marbled that it – it finishes well on grass. Yeah, and I mean, there's been work in Australia and New Zealand. There have been breeds that have been developed or strains within breeds because people have been selecting bulls for mature size and finishing and all of those traits. Um, so, so those are possibilities, but absolutely this is an issue of what is the mature size of this animal going to be? So back in the 50s, for example, the show ring winning cattle were these essentially sausages with short legs that they'd pose in very deep straw. For some reason, they didn't want to show them having much leg at all. And so they were overfinished. They were animals that the packers really didn't want because they ended up trimming off a lot of excess fat et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they then kind of went a different direction and now they're coming back a little bit. Um, so the, the, the issue of, of fatty acid profile, and, and this is maybe a longer story, but we, we've had these various paradoxes, right, that, that we, we start with our cherished hypothesis that fat in the diet causes heart disease. And then, oh no, here's a population that eats a lot of fat but doesn't have heart disease. So let's, we're, we're faced with a choice here. We could either re-examine our hypothesis or we can find some way that allows us to hang on to the hypothesis but explain away that inconvenient data. And the way we've done that repeatedly is to find a way to explain away the unfortunate data. So at first it was the Mediterranean paradox. It must be the olive oil that they're eating. And then we find, oh, the French eat a lot more saturated fat than we do, and they smoke, but they have less heart disease than we do. Oh, it must be the antioxidants in the red wine. And then we find the Swiss, right? And it must be the antioxidants in the dark chocolate. And then we find the people in Greenland that eat a very high fat diet but have a very low rate of heart disease. It must be the fish oil. And so again and again we see this where each time we were confronted with conflicting information, we, we didn't re-examine the hypothesis, and oh, conveniently there was always an industry involved that benefited. <laughs> So now we have a massive fish oil industry, we have a large olive oil industry, we have, you know, wine and dark chocolate, which is not that hard to get people to want to consume, so that wasn't that hard. Um, but the, the, the fact remains that we were trying to explain away the contradictory observations. And without us stepping back and kind of just ripping it all apart and looking at it again, if we go off and look at these other aspects, we, I think, can maybe 
delay the the day coming when we re, where we want to be and and so in animal in soil fertility um, doc um, there was a scientist back in the 1800s named Liebig and he was one of the first to operate in the space of soil fertility and he used the analogy of a wooden rain barrel right made of individual staves and what he said was each of those staves could be thought of as some factor in whatever system you're looking at and one of those factors or staves is always going to be limiting it's going to set the effective volume of that barrel so you can't hold any more water until you've increased that the length of that one stave and so he talked about maybe phosphorus is limiting so you add some phosphorus and now you find that something else is limiting phosphorus is no longer limiting well so I would suggest that in human health the limiting factor is is undoubtedly this hyperinsulinemia produced by carbohydrate based diets and we need to address that and then maybe we can find that protein might be limiting either in amount or quality NHANES data itself tells us that 40% of all Americans aren't getting enough protein by their metric and most females over eight in the United States aren't getting enough protein. Not enough protein and, and fats and oils. And, and the, the issue with that is they're considering animal protein and plant protein as if they're interchangeable. And they are not. Yep. And so that number is undoubtedly worse. Okay, so, so we've got a protein deficiency issue operating here. And then you could think of iron, you know, many, many other things. At some point, some other issues we will probably be able to find are limiting issues. But at this point, those are so huge, I can't imagine that we could discern in the data the effect of some of these other ones. And so the example that I just came across is, in modeling, you make a prediction, then you take the results of that prediction, then you make another prediction off the first one, right? That's how those work. Okay, so, so the first prediction that you make has errors related to it. Well, when you then make another prediction off of that new data set, you compound those errors. And so at the end of the day, you now are making assertions about, uh, and I'll just use this example, you're making predictions about a two degree difference when you've got a 28 degree difference of error, plus or minus 14 degrees. <laughs> right? Right. So it may happen, maybe, but you can't say that from your data because your model can't discern that. And that's, that's, that's the nutritional data that's out there. It's like I say, 98% of the nutritional studies out there aren't, don't even qualify as science. So, so back to what you are seeing with the people that you're working with, the people that Dr. Volick and Finney and, and, um, are, are working with, where, okay, you have people who are obviously broken or 
ill metabolically and within a remarkably short period of time. Those conditions are reversed based on the metrics that we have available to us in a remarkably short period of time. So, okay. Yeah, but there's there's also this 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 cognitive dissonance about that. But but this has been a, a wonderfully illuminating conversation and and I think you're right. We have to get these conversations going and and um I think the information here has been really good for our audience because I don't think people really make the connection. Most most of our audience is obviously more urban, urban suburban and and so they got to think in this big picture and that that they don't have to worry that that steak they're eating is is the end is means the end of the world as we know it. Correct. Eating beef is not ruining the planet. Not eating beef won't save it. Um, if, if what you can afford to do is go to the farmer's market and buy directly from the farmer, that's wonderful. Uh, if you can't afford to do that, you don't need to feel guilty or like you're putting your health at risk by going to the supermarket. Um, so, and, and we don't need to fear the red meat and the animal fats and um, we, we um, you know, join the ruminati. Yep, that's right. Well, and I tell people, you know, because most people, if they have the time and it's enjoyable to go get their farmer's market beef and eggs and all that, that's great. And they have the disposable income. But a lot of people don't. They don't have the time and the convenience. And, and the stress caused by all this is way worse than, than any minor difference. Just like you said, that 2% deviation in what you're predicting does pales in comparison to the 28% of errors you have built in there. Mm-hmm. And so um, supermarkets here in the States, at least, I don't know about down there, know me, but, um, you know, they often use meat as a loss leader. So I tell people to just shop there. And um, in Oz, do you guys eat a, you eat a lot of beef too down there, but just also lamb? Yeah, we no, we eat a lot of, of meat all around. So beef, lamb, chicken, um, yeah. But you also, you also, a lot of Australians eat it with a lot of bread and pasta and oh, other... Yeah. Oh yeah, lots. Sure. Oh, yeah. That's why they find it so hard to to divert um, their eating to a higher fat eating because they're so used to eating such high carbohydrates and because it's um, very hard to start off with to change that mindset. Yeah. Well, hopefully we've done a little bit of uh, made a little bit of an impact here, Peter. Thank you very much. Peter, thanks. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. uh, We'll continue to unite all these different, build all these coalitions and kind of get, keep pushing that information out. Thanks again. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. You were listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, sponsored by Vespa.